Hello again from the Climate Change and Sustainability Podcast. This is Suraj Bhatia. I have here with me uh, Dan Deluri, who's uh, very accomplished as a climate policy uh, advisor. He's also a guest on um, shows such as uh, NPR, and he does several things, very uh, significant things in the field of uh, climate change. So, uh, Dan, great to have you. Uh, please give us a little bit about your background and how you got into this and what you're doing now. Of course. But first, thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm glad to be here. So um, when I went to college, there really wasn't such a major called uh, environmental studies. And yet growing up the way that I did in the outdoors, um, I really cared about nature and the environment and all of that. Um, so I became a biology major in college, but then realized it wasn't for the science, it was for more than that. So I got my education certification and ended up being a science teacher right outside of Washington, D.C. But living in Washington, D.C. connected me to the world of policy. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as, as often is said, uh, the rest is history. And uh, so I, uh, I've, I've used energy and the energy industry as a vehicle. Uh, people working on climate change need a vehicle. They need a way to work on it. And so energy has been my vehicle. And I've worked in the energy industry and utilities and startups and then with my own consulting firm in Washington, D.C. Hmm, I see. Okay, that's great. And uh, at the moment, uh, uh, what area of what type of consultant consulting work are you uh, doing? Well, I'm a senior advisor on climate and energy at Vermont Law School, which is mm-hmm. one of the preeminent uh, schools for environmental law. Okay. So I do some of my work um, through them, assisting in projects that they've uh, put together. But also, uh, just in the past year, I've worked for NGOs, uh, people like the Nature Conservancy. I've worked for um, private technology companies. Um, and I'm also trying to do a lot of pro bono work where maybe there's work that needs to be done, but there's not necessarily a client for it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, um, yeah, jumping right into uh, the field of uh, law and climate related, what, what are the developments in this field? Where is this going? What interesting cases can you talk about? And of course, there's recently been this uh, c- case, the state of California against the five right. majors. So please give us your insights. Sure. Um, the courts are becoming an important arena for climate change discussions and decisions. Um, There was a report at the end of 2022 um, sponsored by the UN that showed there are over 2,100 climate court cases around the world, um, 1,500 of which were in the US. Um, So there's a lot of activity. Uh, Most of it has not been concluded yet. Uh, One that has been concluded that a lot of people are pointing to is what I call the kids case in Montana. And this was where a group of young people sued the state for uh, not protecting the environment and not including climate change in making their decisions. Now, this is a bit of a one-off, unfortunately. In 1972, Montana uh, created a new constitution 
And in that constitution, they put language which uh, the kids were able to use in that um, win that they had in Montana. Um, and I think that points to the fact that as with any uh, law or any crusade, if you will, you have to look for the specific language in any given law that gives you the ability to do something. But the California um, case, which is uh, only just beginning, California recently filed, is what we've seen in a lot of places, and that is suing the big oil companies for basically misleading the public in terms of the effect that fossil, that burning of uh, fossil fuels has on the climate. And so that will be uh, a big one. Uh, California is big, as we all know. And so what happens in California tends to reverberate. Uh, and going back to the kids case, what was the outcome of that case? Well, the outcome is, is that they won. And so now the state um, has to include climate change in any decision regarding approval of any type of project in Montana. Oh, wow. That's amazing. And when was this? Uh, this just happened last year. I don't remember what the month was. I'm going to say it was mid-year. Mm -hmm. It may have been in June or July. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's that's very uh, very interesting. And 2,100 cases. Uh, you mentioned uh, you know 1,500 or so active. That's uh, that's a lot of uh, uh, case law. Yeah, I think it's a natural evolution. Um, you know, as people look for ways to address climate and things like the UN climate change process, and also you know federal and state policy hasn't always been the easiest way as people have found out. Mm -hmm. And then uh, moving on to, you know, the UN, since you just mentioned the United Nations, uh, how exactly are you working with the UN as a delegate and what do, you, what do you do and what are your observations and how is, you know, the United Nations, is it working on, you know, it's on the right track. Uh, I was listening to Sir David King uh, during climate week and he said, you know, the, the, the leader who really gets it is the Secretary General of the United Nations. Oh, oh, very much so. Yes. And so can you share your insights on um, your, you know, sure. working with... Um, I, um, I go back to COP number one. Uh, right now we're up to COP 28. And so I was there um, at the beginning. And back then, um, being an, an NGO or private sector delegate, meant that the COP was pretty simple. Um, you got to spend a lot of time with the uh, country negotiators, both from your country and with other countries. And the big issues were being framed back then, leading up to what was hoped to be a, a major COP in Copenhagen in 2009, but what ended up being in Paris in 2015. The COP has changed over the years. Um, as I said, we're up to COP 28. So you can look at the COP one way and say that, wow, we're at COP 28 and we still don't have the progress that the COP is supposed to be yielding. Um, the other thing is the COP uh, has now turned into a bit of a trade show. You still have the country uh, negotiations going on, but it's a massive event, 30, 40, 50,000 people with all sorts of events happening 
outside of the major cop venue. And I guess to summarize, I'm not high on the cop process anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't like it, develop, it, it developing in the way that I just mentioned into this whole other trade show aspect. But I'm sort of feeling these days that it will, the cop itself, the policy part of the cop will not produce uh, something that we need or, or what we need. And I think it's more likely that a smaller group, uh, say the G20 or mm-hmm. uh, other you know, multinationals will perhaps produce a more meaningful result just because of the amount of emissions that are involved with those countries. Hmm, that's yeah, yeah. And then, of course, now the United Nations has all these, uh, uh, you know, uh, regional sessions as well. So I suppose the, you know, for instance, there's one, a LATAM version that's coming up in a couple of weeks. And yeah. so the the idea of those is more to spur the debate. And then it's up to uh, private sector, governments, individual G20, etc, to take the technologies that already exist, and scale them up, give them incentives through IRA, et cetera? Would you think that's a fair characterization of- Very much so. But I I also want to say that, you know, the COP is not just a meeting. The COP is a process that goes on throughout the year in terms of trying to work on real issues and materials and frameworks. Um, But I think what's happened is the COP meeting has ended up being what everyone focuses on. And if something doesn't happen at COP27, then they say, oh, well, we'll just take care of it at COP28. And I say, no, take care of it now. Just because you go home from the COP meeting doesn't mean that you you can't work on it for another year. Um, So again, I think the COP has its uh, challenges. Hmm. Yes, yes. Anyway, finally, circling back to the kids case, uh, you know, I know that you have... Uh, spoken about and perhaps written about climate anxiety among young people. What should we do? What's your take? What's going on? Uh, Is that real? It's absolutely real. Um, These days you can Google climate anxiety and I think you would be surprised at what comes up. Um, There have been major surveys done in each of the past three years Um, The one that the Yale Climate Communication Center did last year um, showed that 10% of adults are suffering from climate anxiety. And I'm neither a psychiatrist or psychologist. And so I don't want to get into the particulars of uh, of anxiety, but uh, turning to the kids, the numbers are staggering. I mean, 75% in one survey, I think that was at the end of 2021, that showed that they're terrified of it. Um, Numbers like 50% of young kids. And and when I say young kids, a lot of these surveys have been of like age 16 to 25. Hmm. Um, And, you know, I think that's because it's hard to survey kids that are younger than that. But Hmm. kids that are younger than that know about climate change. It's filtering down to everyone. And I think the important thing, and this is where I'm trying to work on it from an education and communication standpoint, is that I don't think adults realize this. And I don't think adults are properly factoring in future generations in the way that they act 
and respond to climate change. Mm -hmm. I mean, the adults have the power, the authority, the property, et cetera, et cetera. And yet they seem to be focused on the present mm -hmm. and not on any type of intergenerational legacy. And the kids are hurting. I always say to my friends and other adults, you know, just talk to any kid that you know well. Just ask him the question and you'll be surprised at what you hear. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that that's uh, quite some information. Uh, before we sign off, anything, uh, any final uh, thoughts or statement uh, that you would like to share with us and our listeners? Well, um, that's an opening for which I could talk at a long, <laughs> for a long time. But um, I think, you know, going back to something I just said, actually, and I think one of the, the, I get asked all the time, what should I do about climate change? And people say things like, you know, well, I recycle. Well, actually, recycling is way down the list. It's, it's surprising. Uh, but um, I always say to people, you do two things you should talk to other people about climate change. Just make it a, a general topic of discussion when you're together with people. And the other thing is become a climate voter. Mm -hmm. I mean, who is in uh, power and what policies they pursue can make a vast difference in what kind of future we have. And so it's really important to think about climate, not just when you go into the, the voting booth, but think about it now in terms of how you can help elect someone who would try and enact good climate policies. Dan, that was a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much uh, for your time. Well, thank this you. is Yes. Uh, and uh, this is Suraj Bhatia signing off. Thank you. Uh, until next time. Namaste.